Now, if you are here, I would ask you to please open up to the book of Jude, the book of Jude. We've been in this series now for the last four or five weeks, and we've been talking about fighting for truth in an age of deceit, fighting for truth in an age of deceit. Now, how many uh, in here would raise your hand um, and say, I am a parent, um, I have either grown children, small children, I'm a grandparent of some sort, how many of you would raise your hand? Um, great, so a good portion of you. Now, how many of you would raise your hand and say, I know the importance of having to repeat things over and over and over again to my children? Yeah, so all those same hands just went back up. I don't know about, I don't know about your home situation, but in our home, we have often found it necessary to repeat things to our children, like, don't touch the stove, it's hot, right? Don't mess with the electrical outlet. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't take your clothes off right there. Don't throw your clothes on the floor. How many of you have ever had to say any of these things or anything else to your children, right? Now, oftentimes, those statements that my wife and I have to make are met with statements in return. Anybody else have a mouthy child? My mom's in the back and she's like, <laughs> she's talking about my sisters. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that, you did. Oftentimes when we have to correct one of our children, they will use a phrase like, I know mom, I know, you've told me a million times already. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Right? The thing is, is that as parents, we know that some things need to be repeated, and sometimes they need to be repeated often to our children. A wise parent always has the welfare and the safety of their child at heart. They love and they care for their children, and they repeat instruction and insight and wisdom over and over and over again. I've been studying the Bible for a really long time and I've come to realize that in the same manner, God repeats to his children wisdom and instruction over and over and over again. Amen, church? He's reminding us here in this small book in the New Testament to be alert He's reminding us to be on guard. He's reminding us to be aware of false teachers that exist here in this day. To know what they look like and what they do and how they affect people by what they say and do and what they teach. Now, if you're in Jude, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping to unpack as much of this as possible. If you would start with me in verse number 8. He said, yet in the like manner, these people, he's talking about those who walk in apostasy, right? These people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the holy ones, or the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but say, the Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they destroy by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11, woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, at As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And this is God's word for us today. Please bow your heads as we pray. God, we ask at this time, Lord, that you would illuminate these verses in our hearts and minds. That they would reach the furthest and darkest corners of our heart, that you would give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, your word tells us that if we ask for wisdom, if we lack it and we ask for it, that you would give it to us without reproach. And so, God, we're asking for wisdom as we study out these few verses today that you would open our hearts and, and make us soft and pliable as, as you would clay, God. That we are, are in the potter's hand this morning. Help us to understand these truths and illuminate, illuminate them in our mind. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen and amen. Now right out of the gate here in verse number 8, we get more insight into the life of those who walk in apostasy. Now, real quick, before we begin to walk through them, I just want to remind us what apostasy is. Apostasy is a a lifestyle choice that someone makes who once said that they either accepted salvation and followed God, and now they are rejecting and denying that God exists. That's the the most simplistic form, is is a rejection of faith and a denial of God, is apostasy. Now, last week we looked at indicators of apostasy, and Jude gives us more indicators, more indicators of apostasy. And the first one he he mentions here in verse number 8 is that they're dreamers. They're dreamers. Uh, Apostates are, in essence, phony visionaries. Jude meant here that these men and women claimed to have had prophetic dreams, which were really deceptions that led people astray from the word of God. Men and women, church. Now, real quick, I'm going to make a little side note, and I'm not going to be able to unpack it. But if you want to go back and listen to my previous Bible study, you can hear everything that I have to say. I'm, I'm not saying that prophecy does not exist, or that God cannot use prophecy in today's church. What I am saying is these specific people, and often people here in our own culture who are in positions of authority, use, use and abuse the gift of prophecy for financial gain or for following. And Jude is saying that the men and women who walk in apostasy, they speak lies and they pervert truth and they teach things that are not scriptural. In essence, they are speaking blasphemies. This is exactly what Jude says. They, the blasphemies are, are really speaking evil and, and lies uh, uh, towards church leaders that God has appointed. We also see here in the text that they reject authority. And that rejection of authority 
was directly linked to the speaking of evil against spiritual leaders. You know, as you study out the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you come to portions of Scripture that Paul wrote to Timothy, and he laid out very clearly one of the, like some of the qualifications in the Bible of what it means to be a spiritual leader or a pastor or an elder, um, depending on what version of the Bible you use, but it, it's all speaking about the, the shepherd of the church or the under-shepherd. And one of those qualifications that's laid out for one who leads the church is it says that they must be able to explain truth. They must be able to explain truth. They must be able to teach truth. They must be an example of those truths. They must be able to unmask those who teach false doctrines. They are to protect and proclaim truth. Now church, in short this morning, the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all of the Old and all of the New Testament is to be guarded as truth. Amen? That was really weak, church. All of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament is to be guarded as truth. Better. Much better. I want you to look at the screen at what Paul said to Timothy. He said that all scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul was exhorting Timothy to continue on, and if you would, Tim, just hang on that verse right there for me. Paul was exhorting Timothy, and he's exhorting the Christian today, that we are to continue on in these things because the Bible comes from God and not man. The Bible comes from God. It is a God-inspired book breathed out by God himself. Now, this means something way more than just saying that God inspired men who wrote it, though we believe that he did inspire the men who wrote it. God also inspired every single word that is recorded for us in scripture. Now there are some people in this culture that protest saying the statement that that statement doesn't mean anything because it's self-referential. The Bible proclaims to be the inspired word of God and anyone could write a book and say that it is inspired by God. True, church? Anybody could write a book. Now, of course the Bible is self-referential. If, of course the Bible states that it's Holy Scripture. Because if it didn't make that claim, then the critics would say that it lacks such a claim. It doesn't matter what side we would fall on, the Bible must be self-referential, claiming that it is Holy Scripture. Yet the difference is, is that the Bible claims to be Holy Scripture, and it has been tested and proved throughout century after century after century. You know, every single generation since the time of the Old Testament has given rise to people who really believed that they would put the last nails in the coffin that would bury the Bible, yet it never, ever works. The Bible outlives and outworks and outinfluences every single critic that it has ever had. I've studied tons and tons of books. I've read about other religions 
I've read about different spiritual leaders who taught different things, and I have come to a conclusion about 15 years ago in my life that there is no equal to the Bible, and there never, ever will be. It was the prophet Isaiah who said that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Endures forever. So, church, what really compares to the Bible? What really is the chaff to the wheat? There is no book like the Bible in its continuity and consistency. There is no book like it in its honesty. There is no book like it in its circulation or its survival. There is no book like it in its influence or even life-changing power. And so you and I here this morning, we must remember that one may believe in the inspiration of the Bible in principle, but then deny it in practice. You may believe that it's real, but you deny its power by the way that you live this life. And we do that in a very scary and dangerous path. We do it by imposing our own meaning into the text. We read into the Bible something that's not there. We deny its power by putting more of ourself into the message and limiting God in the text. We do it by being more interested in our own thoughts and opinions than explaining and proclaiming the words of Christ. But church, I think a lot of Christians fall into this last one. We do it by lazy study and sloppy exposition of the word of God. Do you know in 2005, the London Times as well as the New York Times released articles at the same time to run synonymously alongside of each other that reported a new teaching document that had been issued by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church that warned that the body of Christ should not take the Bible literally. That's what was released in 2005, church. 2005! That's like 18 years ago it was released where church leaders are telling Christians not to take the Bible literally. It was Adam Clark, author and, and theologian, that said a religion that fears the Bible is not a religion of God. We guard truth, church, when we view all truth as the entire counsel of God, as God's authoritative and inerrant and infallible word, and we defend it as such. Don't be like the dreamer. The one who walks in apostasy is like a dreamer adding or taking away from Scripture. Next, Jude says that they defile the flesh. They defile the flesh. You know, when a person walks in apostasy, they believe that they're free to do whatever they want to do to any extent and that God will just forgive them because he is grace-filled. Is God grace-filled, church? Yes, God is grace-filled. But the problem is that there are penalties for living like the devil. There are penalties. You cannot disobey God and then somehow escape consequences following your sinful actions and choices. To defile yourself means that you have become contaminated or polluted. It's the idea that an apostate is immoral and corrupt at their very inward nature and they seek always to indulge the flesh. 
I want you to look at this next verse on the screen. It's 2 Peter 2. Peter says this, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are great in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now I'll just hang tight on that verse for me. The one who walks in apostasy, Peter and Jude are aligning here saying that they are reserved not only for judgments, but they live according to their flesh, not the spirit, and they are marked by uncleanness. The ungodly ones, the apostate is proud and they despise authority. And in their presumption, they will even speak ill. Now church, I don't want you to miss this and I'm going to unpack this in a few minutes. They even speak ill of spiritual powers. The dignitaries here that, that Peter is talking about is Satan and his demons. He's saying they speak ill of Satan and his demons and that the angels themselves do not even speak evil, but the angels rebuke them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, much of what goes on today under the name of spiritual warfare really shows this kind of pride and presumption in a person's life. You know, we recognize that our authority in, is in Jesus, but we see that it's only in Jesus that we have that authority. There's nothing that I do that gives me authority to speak evil towards something else. We must leave the reviling accusations to Jesus Christ alone, and I will unpack that a little bit later here. But Peter is contrasting the behavior of those who walk according to the flesh with angels. That is the faithful angels. He's saying those who walk according to the flesh look one way and faithful angels look something completely different than that. The faithful angels did not slander or exaggerate in what they said or how they represented the sins of other people. Those who walk according to the flesh always they are dreamers. They defile the flesh. And the next characteristic or indicator is that they despise authority. They despise authority. You know, because an apostate despises authority, they reject God's authority, and they reject and despise any kind of spiritual authority whatsoever in their lives. You know, they demand to have it their own way, and they refuse to submit to any other way. They have no fear in the sense that they will just speak out against spiritual authority. They deny God's authority because they are immoral, because they are insubordinate in almost every single way. And the sad thing, church, is that they are inside the church. They're inside the church. Last week, Jude connected the one who walks in apostasy with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and their sensuality. He connected the same things. He connected the people who defile the flesh and their rejection of authority, and he says that they're intermingled. You cannot take one without the other. And Jude points out that these people reject authority, not just in the sense that they don't want it, it's because they want to be in the position of authority. They reject the authority of God and they reject God those or who, who God put into positions of authority. 
church, is any of this coming alive to you this morning? Today, our culture encourages us to reject authority. They encourage us to recognize self as the only real authority in our lives. You want to know how this ends up happening? Oftentimes, the believer will end up doing this with the Bible by choosing to only believe certain passages and rejecting other passages. We see it in church denominations right now across the, uh, around the world that are denying the inerrancy of Scripture. They're saying that it doesn't have power anymore. They're rejecting and only seeing what they want to see in Scripture, and that's what that is right there, a rejection of spiritual authority that was put in place by God himself. Church, but it even goes further than that. We reject God's authority by our beliefs. We, we reject when we choose at the salad bar of religion what we want to walk in and what we would like to just push aside and not allow for it to, to change us or to push us or cause us to grow and be deeper sanctified in this life. But the scariest part about this entire thing is that we often reject God's authority by the lifestyle choices that we make. We make our own rules, and we no longer recognize the power of God and the authority that he has established here in this life. Do you know, in the darkest days of Israel, in the darkest days of the history of Israel in the Bible, we see time and time and time again a term that was characterized that of the people if you go back and you study out the book of Judges, you see over and over and over again a phrase that says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes. Church, that is literally a picture of what we are seeing here in our culture. That pattern is all over the world. Every man did what was right in his own eyes eyes so Jude now has set the stage for the second week in a row he set the stage and he begins to give us clear examples and illustrations to help us grasp apostasy the conduct the character the consequences now you may be sitting out there thinking to yourself you may be online listening to this right now thinking this book seems repetitive that's right because it is it is repetitive we are to continue seeing clear examples church of apostasy and it's given over and over and over again so that we get it so that we understand it the character of apostasy is always marked by irreverence always it's always marked by irreverence they revile authority and they reject God's rule and reign. They are in full and open rebellion to God and his order of authority and his rule. And so church, I want us to look at the first example here in verse number 9 and 10. It's the example of Michael the archangel. Now before you jump and be like, Michael the archangel was an apostate? No, no. Relax. Look back at verse number 9. He says, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing over the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like the unreasoning animal, understand instinctively. Now, Jude mentions here in the text two different kinds of angelic beings. Two different kinds. First, he, he mentions Michael. Michael is an angelic being that is faithful to God, and he is a servant of God. What is the other one? Who was Michael fighting? Satan. That's the other angelic being here. The devil is among the angelic beings that re rebelled against God, who are now the enemies of God and man. Now, church, I, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to study out uh, this, the spiritual warfare side of things in Scripture, maybe apart from reading or hearing a sermon occasionally on Ephesians chapter 6. I just want to enlighten us with a few things this morning. First and foremost, there are invisible angelic beings all around us. Just track with me for a minute. There are ministering spirits that are sent by God to assist man, and there are demonic spirits that want to defeat us. This here is another obscure reference in the book of Jude. And the last time that we read about the body of Moses was in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is what it says on the screen. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the grave to this day. This is very important for us to know and to understand. So if you're a note taker, gold star student, write down that scripture reference. We know, we do not know where Jude received his information about the dispute between Michael and Satan. He may have received it in a unique revelation from God, but according to many early early historians and teachers of the first century, Jude was referring to an apocryphal book known as the Assumptions of Moses, which is only, only small portions of that book were recovered and survived. Now, we don't know exactly why there was a dispute over the body of Moses. Some have said that the devil wanted to use Moses' body as an object of worship to lead Israel astray and back into idolatry. Where others have said that Satan wanted to desecrate the body of Moses and to claim a right to it because Moses had murdered an Egyptian. Now, the more likely stance is that the devil anticipated a purpose that God had for the body of Moses and the devil was trying to stop that plan from coming to fruition. Now, we know after his death, Moses appeared in bodily form on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And he was there with Elijah, whose body was caught up in the heavens in 2 Kings. Now perhaps Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses of the book of Revelation chapter 11. And God needs Moses' body for that future plan. But for Jude, church, I don't want you to get lost in this. I wanted to explain it to you, and now we're going to move on. So don't get lost. For Jude... The main point is not why Michael was disputing. The main point for Jude is how he disputed with the devil. How? Look back with me. Verse number 9. He says, But when the archangel contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume 
to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. If you have your physical Bible, I want you to underline that phrase. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. First, we see that Michael is in a battle. Secondly, we see that he battled in the Lord's authority. This proves to us that Michael is not Jesus, as some heretical groups have thought. Jesus rebuked Satan in his own authority. Michael did not. Michael did not. The point of contrast here is that Michael could not reject the devil's accusations on his own authority. Significantly, church, Michael dared not bring a reviling accusation against Satan. Michael did not mock or accuse the devil. He did not. For those of you who are in here, I just I want you to stop writing for a moment. I want you to look up here. I need something to sink in for you this morning. God has not called us as Christians to judge the devil. God has not called us as Christians to judge the devil. He did not call us as Christians to condemn the devil, to mock him or to accuse him. He called us to battle against him in the name of the Lord. If an angel would submit to that line of thinking, think of the audacity and the arrogance of one who walks in apostasy who speaks against the things of God. The one who rejects authority. There's a term that is used in scripture saying that those who are this way are reprobates. They follow their own ideas. They follow their own philosophies and they make up their own principles by twisting scripture. And Jude says that they are like an animal who does not have the ability to reason that they are totally irreverent and they do what they want with regard to God's authority. So the example of Michael the archangel. The next is going to be the examples of three men from the Old Testament. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now how many of you in here know the story of Cain? Raise your hand. How many of you in here know the story of Balaam? Okay, a little bit less. How many of you know the story of Korah? A lot less. <laughs> okay, good, good. Now, in rapid succession, we are given three examples of apostasy from the past. Now, those of you who are note takers, I want you to please note that Cain stands as an example of dead religion. Cain stands as an example of dead religion. Cain's story is found in Genesis chapter 4. Each of the sons of Adam and Eve brought God an offering. Now Cain was a farmer and he brought an offering from his harvest. Abel was a shepherd and so he brought an offering from his flock. Now God accepted Abel's offering and he rejected Cain's offering. Now before you take the assumption it's because one was a blood sacrifice and one was not, I want you to stop because that's not it at all. Many people assume that because Abel brought a blood sacrifice and, and, Cain, and Cain brought a grain sacrifice, that the difference was between the two offerings and the one was of sacrificial blood. But church, I don't want you to miss this. The real reason, the real reason that Cain was rejected 
and Abel was accepted was faith and unbelief. Faith and unbelief. Go back and study out Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a very clear picture that Cain's offering was rejected because of unbelief. And if you go back to Genesis 4, verse number 5, you, you see that after God rejects the sacrifice, Cain became angry. It says his countenance fell because he knew that he was rejected by God. And in a fit of anger, Cain murders Abel and he tries to cover it up. Don't miss this, church. Jude says that Cain typifies a way that an apostate follows in. Murderous anger. Murderous anger. It is the way of unbelief. It is the way of empty religion, which leads to jealousy, which leads to persecution, and eventually to murderous anger. Do you know there is no greater curse on this earth than empty, vain religion. There's no greater curse, church, those who have the form of godliness but deny its power, is what, what Paul said to Timothy. Paul added that those, those who deny its power, having no form, he said to avoid or turn away from such people. Do you know many Christians in this day and age are afraid of secular humanism or atheism in this world, but dead religion is far more dangerous and sends more people to hell than anything else. The example of Cain. Now we have the example of Balaam. The example of Balaam. Balaam's story is in Numbers 22 and Numbers 25 as well as Numbers 31. During the time of the Exodus, Israel advanced to the land of Moab after defeating the Amorites. And when the Israelites came near, King Balak of Moab sought the help of a prophet named Balaam. Now, Balaam was the prophet for hire. And if you go back and study out Balaam's life, he was the, he was the man who would do anything for money. Anything. Balaam lusted after riches and prestige that were offered to him, and God gave him over to his sin. God gave him over. God warned Balaam to turn back when he was on his way to see the king, and yet his heart was so set on the rich reward and the promise that he continued on. Now, if you know the story of Balaam, you know that God even sends a talking donkey to stop Balaam from going and he still pressed on man how crazy would that be you're headed in a direction and one of your animals starts talking to you you want to know what the saddest thing about Balaam was in numbers it is recorded that Balaam knew that what he was doing was wrong Balaam knew in fact, he said, God, I have sinned. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. He made a, a covenant with the Lord. And guess what, church? He doesn't turn back. He keeps going forward. He keeps going. And the greedy error of Balaam was that he was willing to compromise everything for money. 
He's willing to compromise everything for money. The one who walks in apostasy has the same exact heart. Willing to say and do anything for financial gain in ministry. Do you know many Christians wouldn't deny Jesus under persecution, but some and many might deny him for a large sum of money? There's not a single sin that corrupts man, that corrupt man will not commit for the sake of money. There's not. Covetousness, church, covetousness is a dangerous sin. And if you go to the New Testament, you realize and recognize really quickly that it was covetousness that killed Jesus. Covetousness is what placed Jesus on the cross. 30 pieces of silver placed our Savior on a cross for you and I. The example of Balaam. Then you have the example of Korah. Korah's story is also found in Numbers, but earlier in Numbers, Numbers 16, I think, 17. You know, Balaam was a prominent man in Israel, and one day he came to Moses, and he told Moses that you have taken too much upon yourself, Moses. The congregation is holy, and every one of us is, and the Lord is among them. So why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? Do you know Korah and his followers resented the authority that God gave to Moses and then to Aaron? Korah, this is, listen to this church. Korah was a Levite, but he was not of the descendant of Aaron. He was a Levite. He had a place in ministry specifically laid out for him, and he was discontent with what God had called him to do. He was discontent, and he wanted to go outside of his sphere of ministry and he wanted the ministry and the authority of Moses, but he was not given it. You know, Korah needed to learn two lessons, church, that I think we all need to learn this morning. We, first, should work hard to fulfill everything that God has called us to. Amen? And we should never try to be what God has not called us to be. Did you guys catch that? We should never try to be what God has not called us to be. You know, the one who walks in apostasy is never content. They're never content with what God wants them to be or to do. And they always reject the spiritual authority that God has placed in their life. These examples are really real, church. It happened. And as he ends that section, he gives us a few quick examples of things that we can see in nature or learn from in nature. So the last thing I want us to see as we begin to land this plane is the natural examples. The natural examples. Look back with me at verse number 12. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead and uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever these are the examples of the natural things that we see that lead us to see apostasy in others first he says the rocks of the sea or the reef 
Do you know like a reef, it's got sharp and jagged edges and they're unseen to the naked eye until you've either stepped on one, hit one, or you're under the water near them. Do you know the early Christian often met for a common meal, something like a potluck dinner, and they called them love feasts or agape feasts. And when the apostates came, they only served themselves. They only served themselves. They ate greedily while others went hungry. The selfishness of the apostate is what spoils the fellowship. So church, I'm going to make a really hard statement. It's going to come to the screen. And before you begin to write it, I want you to hear it and read it. It, is, it always spoils fellowship when we come to church with a selfish bless me attitude. It always spoils fellowship when we come to church with a bless me attitude. When we make it about me, when we make it about our situation, when we make it about something that's going on, when we make it about me and we have laid aside the glory of God in this place, it always spoils fellowship. Always. You know, there are many who would never eat selfishly at a church meal, but still come to church concerned with only themselves. Next is the dark sky with no rain or, or the waterless clouds. You know, clouds without water are good for nothing. They bring no life-giving rain and they block out the sun. They exist only for themselves. The one who walks in apostasy is just like these clouds. They look like they have the truth and they can deliver it but in the end they can't the promise is there but in the end they produce nothing at all the next example is of the dead trees they have no fruit because they have no root it was matthew who recorded in matthew chapter 15 that every plant which the heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up shall be rooted up church fruitless trees are rootless trees when a tree is not producing, we should be warned. We should be warned. Next is the example of the raging waves. For the modern man, the sea is something of beauty. How many of you have ever stood at the ocean's shore? Yeah, many of you. It's an absolute beauty to see sunrise, sunset, the ocean can be absolutely beautiful. Do you know for the ancient man, the sea was an unmanageable terror. Isaiah 57 says that the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest in their waters cast up mire and dirt. The one who walks in apostasy is busy and active like the raging waves of the sea, but busyness is no mark of correctness, church. The fruit of these men was like the foam or the scum of the seashore. Jude had in mind the shoreline after, after a storm has washed up all of the dirt and the grime and, and the mire and the driftwood and the debris. It was dirty. It was filthy. Then you have the example of the wandering star. How many of you have ever had an opportunity to witness a comet or a shooting star? A lot of you seen it 
there for a moment. It's absolutely beautiful, and then it's gone. Utter darkness. The one who walks in apostasy astonishes for a time and then vanishes into darkness. The longer I've studied out scripture, the more I have come to realize that an unpredictable star is no good for guidance or navigation. Even so are the deceivers that claim to be in positions of leadership and authority because of God. Those, those men and women are useless and untrustworthy. Church, I want us to be beware of following a fallen star because it just leads to eternal blackness. And in a few short verses here, we've been flooded with illustration after illustration after example after example, but I wonder this morning if we hear the warning. I wonder, church, if we are like, yeah, okay, pastor, you said it a million times already. I wonder if we're in here and we've taken the mentality of our children. And we're like, all right, Jude, we get it. There are people who reject and deny God. We get it, pastor. You've pointed it out to us multiple weeks in a row already. I wonder if we hear the warning. I wonder if we have missed what it means to contend for the faith. To agonize over truth. Church, we have to make sure that we are agonizing for the faith by doing three things. Three things. I'm going to add to the three things I gave you last week. Some of them are going to be pretty close. But church, the first thing, we have to make sure we have an accurate understanding of God's word. We have to make sure we have an accurate understanding of God's word. We must study and search out scripture and seek God and surround our lives with truth, with what is true. We must submit to God's authority. Every day, we have millions and millions of tiny choices, church. Every day, we have a choice to make. Cain, Balaam, Korah. They're just three examples of men in Scripture who made a choice, and their choice was to rebel, reject, and run away from God. You and I must choose to submit. And then last, we must understand the seriousness of these warnings. So I, I understand that, you know, it's, it's 1135 and you're probably sitting in here wanting to get your kids or go to lunch Church, I wonder how many of you have sat here for the last four weeks or the last three weeks or two weeks or 
even just this week and you've, you've had a dismissive attitude about the warnings of Scripture. Because a Christian, the Christian can't have a dismissive attitude when it comes to the warnings of God's Word. No matter how many times, no matter how many times, church, we've sat in service after service after service, after guest speaker after guest speaker, it doesn't matter if you've been in church for 50 years, we should always heed the warnings. We should always heed the warnings. I don't, I just feel like I need to read something to us. In the story of Cain and Abel, God had an interaction with Cain, and he reiterates that we must respond to the warnings of his word. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It is crouching at your door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Church, I wonder this morning how many times, I wonder how many moments and opportunities we've had choices to do what is right when sin was crouching at our door and we dismissed the warnings of God. I wonder how many are sitting in here right now and you've not been able to connect with this series because that's you. Church, if that is you, you do not have to stay in that place. Amen? You don't have to stay there. God is saying, I'm right here. Don't. Don't let the sin that is crouching at your door overtake you. James tells us the man who knows what is right and does not do it to him, it is sin. So church, I'm wondering if in this moment of time, we just need to get alone with the Lord. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is just impressing upon me that we as a church body need to ask God to search us and know us. If there's anything in me that is wicked, remove it, God. Are we heeding the warnings this morning? Hey, Israel, could you put on, um, on one of the piano music things that I have up there for him? There should be a... a thing that says invitational music and just turn it down really really low church I'm, I'm going to challenge you this morning to get alone with God I'm going to challenge you for those who are physically able I'm going to challenge you to get out of your seat and come right down here to this altar and say God search me and know me you don't have to wait for the music to start I'm right now get out of your seat and if you are like, I physically can't come, 
That's okay. Jesus can meet you right at your seat. God, I, I come to you in this place, Lord, and, and I beg of you to continue giving us warning signs. Your word tells us that you will, so God, I'm just asking you to be true to your word and continue to give us warning signs in this life that you would continue to to guide our steps as we seek your word. We know that your word is a light unto our steps. We know, God, that there's value in, in reading this word, but God, we also know that there's a struggle at times for some to, to open up this book. And so I'm begging, God, that you would change the taste buds of our heart. That you would cause a craving deep within us to, to seek your word, to seek your truth in this life. God, I'm asking that you would give us strength and courage in this life when it seems like nobody around us is following tightly to the Lord, but that we are the only ones. God, encourage us with the people around us. Encourage us with your words. God, I, I know for my own personal life, I don't want to be a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways. And God, that is a prayer. I pray for this church body that, that we would be undivided, that our focus would be on you and you alone. And so God, I'm, I'm asking for you, Holy Spirit, to come and, and to fill us, overwhelmingly fill us to overflowing. Change our our desires, God, align them with your word. Remind us, remind us of these warnings in scripture. Make us willing. God, I know you don't violate our will, but make us willing. Allow our minds to meditate on these examples today. Fill us fresh and new. Give us divine interactions and encounters, God. I just ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.